We're going to this fall be looking at uh, themes in the Bible related to exile, refugee, uh, displacement, like not living in your home. Uh, And Lamentations is kind of a songbook of people experiencing that. And so we're going to spend a few weeks in this book, so I'm just going to give you sort of a taste of what this book feels like. So uh, Jerusalem's been sacked, the, the God's special city is in ruins, and, uh, and this is the reflection. This is Lamentations chapter 1. I'll just read a few verses to get you a sense of how they're feeling. How deserted lies the city, once so full of people. How like a widow is she, who once was great among the nations. She who was queen among the provinces has now become a slave. And I was going to develop that image of of the city almost like a widow, a grieving widow. Bitterly she weeps at night. Tears are upon her cheeks. Among all her lovers, there is none to comfort her. All her friends have betrayed her. They have even become her enemies. After affliction and harsh labor, Judah has gone into exile. She dwells among the nations. She finds no rest. All who pursue her have overtaken her in the midst of her distress. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, According to the United Nations, in 2015, there were more than 65 million refugees around the world. The last time there were even close to that number of displaced people was right after World War II. 65 million refugees in 2015. It's almost like we've had another world war. Syrian refugees get the news, and as they should, two out of three people living in Syria have had to flee their home. Two out of three. Twelve million out of 18 million people displaced. Then you add to that, there's three million refugees in 2015 from Afghanistan, a million from Somalia, another million from Sudan, half a million each from Burma and from the Congo. 65 million people forced to leave their homes. And I try to imagine that. I try to imagine like being forced to leave your, your, your homeland. Ending up in a, a refugee camp. Often it's just kind of a makeshift tent city where it looks like you'd maybe stay there for maybe like a week or two and you end up there for five or ten or 15, or even 20 years. Not allowed to work, uh, not able to leave, not knowing if or when you'll ever return. Everything you built in your home country, right? Like all your friends and your church and the school you went to, your community, your savings, your business, it's all gone. I think being forced to leave your country like that, living in a place that's not your home, would almost certainly be the single most defining event of your life. And now I bring this all up because this idea of refugees and exiles, it is all over the Bible. 
in the story of God's people, what you will find is that God's people have more often than not been in some kind of state of homelessness. Right? Starts right in the beginning. Adam and Eve kicked out of the garden. You got the Tower of Babel, right? Everybody dispersed. Abraham, Father Abraham, he had to leave his home twice. And of course, you got the Israelites, they're slaves in Egypt for centuries, right? And then when they finally leave Egypt, right, they just end up wandering around in the desert for decades. The story of God's people, more often than not, is a story of not being at home. And what makes this so remarkable, if you know the whole story of the Bible, is that one of the central promises of the Bible, one of the central promises God makes to His people is the promise of a home. Right? The promised land. But that home was an extremely long time in coming. Right? So between the time the promises were made and then you got the exile, you got, the, uh, you, well, you got Egypt and then the wilderness and all the rest, it's like 600 years. And then once, even once they get to the promised land, it's basically in disarray. Like if you read the book of Judges, I mean, it was just a mess for like 300 years until finally in the books of Samuel and Kings in your Bibles. Samuel and Kings. Israel finally becomes like a real nation. Okay? They get a king. They build a palace. They set up like this extravagant temple to worship. They replace that kind of, it's probably pretty grungy old tent they'd been carrying around, right? They beef up the army. They're going to defend the homeland. They've been waiting almost a thousand years for this. I just imagine what that would have felt like for Israel, right? For them to, to look around and, and to see the temple and to, to see the palace and to be like, Whew, you know, finally, I'm home. You know, we've arrived. After like generations of foreign rulers and wandering and just chaos, like finally things were working out. They'd arrived. And I imagine it must have felt like a little bit of heaven on earth. Except if you know the story. <laughs> you know there was a problem. And we talked about it most of the month of August, if you were here. You see, this, this promised land, it was supposed to be a place where justice was just so common that even poor people got it. And, and, and people who were weak in the community, they were just taken care of. It was just assumed. And, and where people worshipped nobody except for the true God of Israel. I mean, the, the point of it, it was supposed to be kind of like heaven on earth. But it wasn't. Right? So the paradise they thought they'd found, the sense of having arrived, was only on the surface. Beneath the surface was rotten. The weak were not being taken care of, they were being taken advantage of. The poor weren't getting justice, they were getting exploited. And to be fair, they were worshiping God. Uh, they just happened to be worshiping Him alongside whatever other idol or God they felt like worshiping that week. In other words... 
It wasn't at all the kind of place God intended for his people. And to you and me, you know, like reading through the books of Samuel and Kings, then like, you know, going through the prophets like we did in August, um, it's so obvious. It's so obvious that they, they haven't arrived, right? It's so obvious that they have further to go. But incredibly, it seems like a lot of people in that day didn't really realize there was even a problem. They looked around, right? And the externals were good. Like they finally had the palace and the temple and the economy was growing and the army was strong. And they thought, this is it. We did it. It's what we've been waiting for. And they were so convinced of this. Their their delusion was so great that God starts sending prophets to be like a wake-up call. And these prophets started saying something unthinkable. They said that if Israel didn't snap out of it, if Israel didn't realize how far they were from God's intention, how far they still had to go, God's going to come in and He's going to take it all away. The palace, the temple, the city, even the people. And if you know the story, you know that's just what happens. The last few chapters of 2 Kings. King Nebuchadnezzar comes, king of Babylon. And over the course of a few years, he sacks the city and he kills the king and he loots the palace and he desecrates the temple. And then he takes the people. Mostly just the healthy, the young, the influential, the promising people. He takes them away to Babylon. And he leaves the city in ruins. And you know, it was in the ruins... It was in the ruins that for the first time, God's people could not ignore what was obvious to the rest of us. They couldn't ignore that the land that they lost, it was not the promised land. It wasn't the promised land because God was not treated as the king there. I mean, it's not like they were against God. They weren't against God. They liked having God around. There's a lot of perks to having God around, right? You get kind of like protection. You maybe get better harvest, some other incidental blessings. They liked the perks. They just didn't want the trouble of having to actually treat him like he were the king. Like they wanted God's land, but they wanted to run it. And they convinced themselves that everything with this arrangement was fine as long as this superficial stuff was okay. As long as you had the temple and the palace and the army, they could go on pretending like this is what God had intended. But in truth, it was all a delusion. So I've been thinking this week, about this delusion and about how this same dynamic can be true for us. Like A lot of us look around and some of the superficial stuff is good, right? So you get good grades, you make decent money, your bills are paid. Maybe you don't feel real restless 
in this life. You don't have a sense of, of longing for something else. Because what you've got here, it's pretty good. You feel like maybe you've arrived, like you've you got a little slice of heaven here on earth. I mean, you might tinker with this or that in your life, but, but mostly things are fine. You like it here. But this morning, I want to make the case that, that we Christians living in 21st century North America, we are not mostly okay. I believe we're exiles. I believe that we are spiritual refugees in this world and we live under foreign occupation. See, the land that we were meant for, God's kingdom, it's a place where Christ is king of everything. Where we follow his lead and where he calls the shots and where where the decisions that we make are not, first of all, about us and our happiness. But the decisions that we make are, first of all, about his glory. That's what the promised land is about. Things revolve in the best possible sense. Things revolve around God. But the world we live in, the lives we lead, whatever they are, I don't think they're that. I mean, how many of us worry, even just a little, about like conforming our lives to what God might want? I mean, when was the last time many of us even bothered to ask the question, like, what does God think about this? You know, we come to a difficult question about morality or ethics, and we say, well, you know, I mean, who can really understand the Bible anyway? I mean, other people are doing it. They seem to be fine. I'm sure God, I'm I'm, I'm sure God mostly, He mostly just wants me to be happy. I'm sure God just wants me to follow my heart. I'm sure that's what God wants. And, and that God, most of us, mostly want to worship is a God like that. A God who, who kind of hooks us up with good things from time to time, but mostly a God who just blandly agrees with the way we already think of things. A God who agrees with our politics and agrees with our ethics and agrees with the ways we spend our money. A God who doesn't really get hung up on what's right and wrong. A God who doesn't question us, but just wants us to feel fulfilled. Does that God sound familiar to anybody? I hear about that God all the time. He's very popular these days. Let me ask, if that's what we think of God, if our God mostly just wants us to be happy, Who's the king in that situation? Who's running the show? I mean, another way to ask the question, whose promised land do you really want to live in? God's? Or yours? Right? I mean, like the Israelites, I think the superficial stuff might look like we're in something like the promised land. But if Christ is not king over everything... If there are parts of your life where you're not letting him in, then we've not arrived. It's not the promised land. We're still refugees here. 
We live under foreign occupation. It's not God who seems to be running the show. It's more often my selfishness or my pride or my sin or or my pursuit of my fulfillment on my terms. And it is keeping us from truly being home. That's where the book of Lamentations comes in. Um, we wanted to kind of give you an intro to this theme of exile in Scripture. And, and the first thing you need to know about exile, and something that Lamentations makes really clear, is that exiles is, is the pits. I mean, the, the book of Lamentations, it is a songbook of exiles, and it is so sad. I mean, these are folks who had the superficial stuff stripped away. They lost it. And then they realized how little of God they really had wanted in their lives. There were people who realized God was not running the show in Israel. Their greed, their pride, their selfishness, that's what was running the show. And it left their community in ruins. And so the writer describes it in the city, he describes the city like a a grieving widow. Chapter 1, verse 2, Bitterly she weeps at night. There is none to comfort her. Verse 3, She dwells among the nations. She finds no rest. Verse 8, She says, Our sins have caused this. Verse 17, And so I weep and my eyes overflow with tears. No one is near to comfort me. Verse 21, People can hear my groaning, but no one comforts me. You have the image, right? She realizes how bad it is. She is wailing for help. Nobody cares. She's alone. And then this, and this is the verse that stood out to me like like a ton of bricks when I was studying Lamentations. It's chapter 2, verse 13. And the writer says, What can I say for you? With what can I compare you, O daughter of Jerusalem? Right? So, I mean, she's at a loss for words. She doesn't know what to say. She says, To what can I liken you that I may comfort you? O virgin of Zion. Right? She's, she's grasping. Like, what can fix this? Is there a drug that can make me feel better? Like, is there a politician that can make things great again? Is there a book that I need to read or a class that I need to take? But then she says, Defeated. She says, your wound is as deep as the sea. Your wound is as deep as the sea. Who can heal you? Lamentations, it is a book of epic despair. I mean, it... It captures the feeling of that moment when you realize how far you still have to go. How hollow what you used to grasp really is. Your wound is as deep as the sea. Who can heal you? Dear friends of Jesus Christ, it's bad. (laughs) A world, a life, a person that does not acknowledge Christ as king It is a wound as deep as the sea. When we put ourselves in charge, there is almost no end to the injustice that we'll tolerate and the idolatry that we will condone. 
But as bad as it is, this is important, as bad as it is, as hard as it is to confront, I think confronting this grief is essential. Really, like feeling the pain of this foreign occupation, I think it's necessary. Because you see, this grief, the, the grief of lamentations, the sadness in these pages, what's happening? The delusion is gone. That's why she's grieving. She thought everything was fine. All God did was expose it for the emptiness it was. And I think spiritually this is so important. We can't just pretend like, well, if my bills are paid and I'm passing my classes and my family's happy and we make it to church most of the time, then everything's okay. Our wound, our sin, it is as deep as the sea. And there's not like a quick fix to wounds like that. You can't just like take some aspirin and put some ice on it. The, the wound that keeps us from this promised land, it's not like, oh, you know, I'll just I'll go to church a little bit more. That'll probably take care of it. Or I'll try to be a better person. There is a sickness in the human heart. It's deep down. Selfishness, sin. I mean, knowing the human heart, we'll just turn the church attendance into a reason to think that we're better than somebody else. We just treat doing all those good deeds. That would be an occasion for us to have self-righteousness. I mean, it happened in Israel, right? They chose the delusion that their wound wasn't that bad, that everything was fine, and so they didn't repent, and they reaped this foul harvest of injustice and idolatry. It's what happens, right? When we pick and choose what we believe about God, we, we craft Him in our image, we, we worship a God who likes everything we like and dislikes everyone we dislike. And we can convince ourselves that everything is fine because some externals are okay. But we must come to the same realization Israel came to. We must realize that this wound is deep. Our condition is critical. You know, this time of year, you can look at the problems of the world, and, and it's tempting to think that maybe we're just one presidential election. We're just a couple of Supreme Court justices away from heaven on earth. Dear friends, it's like treating cancer with an aspirin and an ice pack. Our wound is so much deeper. You know, when the writer of Lamentations asks, who can heal your wound? There's not really an answer. Sam's going to talk about this next week. I mean, the book starts in grief and it, it really ends in grief. The answer to that question, who can heal your wound, really wouldn't come for another few hundred years. A man named Jesus would be explaining to people why he'd come to this earth. And people had been noticing, like, he wasn't, like, he was hanging around, like, people who, like, they weren't good people, you know? Um, like, they were people with baggage and issues and all this kind of stuff. And, and the folks who felt like everything was fine with their lives, like, like the folks whose externals were looking really good, they were like, Jesus, what are you, what are you doing? Like, why are you hanging out with these losers? 
And he said this. He says, it's not the healthy who need a doctor. It's not the healthy who need the doctor. It's the sick. He said, I didn't come to call the righteous. I came to call sinners to repentance. Dear friends of Jesus Christ, God can't get you to the promised land if you think you're already there. You can't get healed by a doctor unless you know you're sick. But if you know, and you call on this physician, this is the good news of the gospel, if you know, then when that delusion of, well, I'm okay and you're okay, like when that delusion is stripped away, you will find a Savior in Jesus Christ whose driving purpose is to heal and restore. You will find a Savior whose life was given to really get the homeless home and to heal our deepest wound. Let's pray together. Lord, I pray that we would not be afraid uh, to identify the sin in our lives, uh, the idols we're really quick to make, the injustice that we're willing to, intoler- that we're willing to tolerate. Um, Lord, I pray that you would help us to confront the sin even in our own hearts because we are filled with so much hope that you are the one, you are the one who can heal this deep, deep wound. It's why you came. And it's why we give our lives to you. In Jesus' name, amen.